Hey, welcome. It's seven minutes uh, after 11 o'clock, and Dave Rowland is going to be with us. He's been listening to the uh, Supreme Court uh, as they uh, discuss the uh, Trump ballot ban case, uh, and we'll get his input. It should be fascinating, uh, but uh, before Dave Rowland, it's time for Mike Murphy, and that's Como Buzz with one Z, B-U-Z, ComoBuzz.com, and uh, we're going to talk conflicts of interest Mike, welcome. Uh, yeah, thanks, Gary. Yeah, this uh, Airbnb regulation issue seems to have brought out the worst of our uh, conflicts of interest. Um, so the news last week, or what kind of blew up on Friday or over the weekend, I guess I should back up. On Monday night, we had the big council meeting when after five years of work, these regulations on Airbnbs, which basically is... There's four, five, six hundred of them operating without authorization in the city. It's going to put regulations on them. It was fought pretty hard by the Airbnb owners and the and Realtors Association, which represents them sort of, because of, uh, you know, makes them pay the lodging tax, brings a bunch of uh, inspections, the days they can use it, and most importantly, where they can operate. Well, Nick Knoth, who works for the Realtors, he's sitting on the city council. He's already facing a recall because of his being accused of a conflict of interest in this case, which when it boils down to, becomes relatively obvious. Uh, but now what Como Buzz here learned last week was that Betsy Peters, the council person from the 6th Ward, owns and operates an Airbnb and has for three years. So she's been participating in this whole deal without disclosing that. She, Oops. Yeah, we, had a, we did the story, and then we had her on the Sunday morning Columbia Buzz show, and we got into a really contentious... Uh, Discussion, and she tried to claim that just because she owned an Airbnb, she owns, she kind of has an empire of rental properties, that 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 she doesn't really feel like it's a conflict of interest. So, you know, I went to the city attorney, and the city attorney was, she said the city attorney supported her. So I asked the city attorney, and let's get this straight: if you own an Airbnb, you're a public, you're a council person, you own an Airbnb, and you're voting on an Airbnb regulations. That's not a conflict of interest. What is a conflict of interest in the city of Columbia? So by Friday afternoon, she had decided to recuse herself from the uh, vote on Monday. She told us that Sunday morning on the show. Then what kind of led into the, you know, this kind of like a little blow up that's going around. This is like, well, whoops, Betsy, if it's a conflict of interest now, what about last summer when we decided to alter these uh, these regulations? And then what about... Two years ago, when you voted with the majority here to uh, for a stay of abatement on enforcing these rules, all the while while you owned one of these. So kind of embarrassing for her. She's maintaining it just really isn't on her mind. She probably was going to vote. I, I mean, it, it's hard. We're just kind of cleaning up some real questionable ethics around our city council. And the city attorney didn't see it as a conflict. Yeah, I, here's what happened, okay. So the city attorney, which is, she's under a lot of fire. A lot of people think she would resign part of this conspiracy of unethical behavior down there. But regardless of all that, Betsy tells me that the city attorney has, knows her situation. She's disclosed it to her and she says she's quite all right. And I was like, okay, Betsy, let's make sure you're saying this. What I'm hearing you're saying, Betsy's like, yeah. So I contacted the city attorney we get radio silence, and then the next day, Betsy decides to uh, she's going to have to abstain from the voting. So I think that uh, city attorneys, I don't think you're going to see a city attorney go out front and say, yeah, you can own an Airbnb and vote on the regulations. <laughs> wow. So uh, 
were down two. Yeah, well, Betsy recused, but Cano still voted. At the end of the day, he's going to get recalled for this. But at the end of the day, they passed the regulations largely intact with what the Planning and Zoning Commission sent over. So in a way, it's a pretty big victory for the city. Maybe not so much for the realtors, but they really needed to get these ordinances in place and solve this problem. They're probably the last city in the country who doesn't have you know their their business taken care of and regulating these things so pretty much intact they all it got passed there was it was a split vote uh not everybody supported it but there's enough majority as they went through this thing and it's going to go on the books june 1 and, and the, the problem should be largely behind us there's going to be issues because they put a loophole in so so owners could go to the council for a conditional use permit to get around some of these things and but that's, it's still, I think, a pretty big victory for Columbia to get this behind them. So can you tell me some of the changes, some of the new rules? Yeah. So the, the big one is you can't, all of them are pretty acceptable. Here's the one that hurts people or the, that's causing all the trouble. If you own a, uh, a house and you want to rent it out for an Airbnb, a room, a basement, an attic, you can do that with the, the, some regulations, but you're not going to get hurt. Who's getting clamped down on here is the investor operator who goes into a residential neighborhood and buys a home strictly for the purpose of running it as, as an Airbnb. That's what they want to stop happening. And that's what, what that's where the biggest uh, contention was. That's the big restriction. And that's where the people who are getting hurt who have gone and done that. There's no grandfather clause. Basically, they're getting going to get put out of business or have to take it back to a single family rental. So what hoop is there? You can't yeah, so own a, you, are there any, is there any way that you can get around this? Yeah, I mean, so what Barbara Buffalo, the mayor did with uh, council, apparently uh, it was in a, not in a formal meeting. They sent it back and said, we need something to uh, uh, keep these people whole or give them the chance. So they put in a, a provision for a conditional use permit, which means at the end of the day, after you go through a bunch of hoops, but at the end of the day, the council has responsibility for all of those. So if you can get four members of that seven-member council to vote in favor of your granting you a conditional use permit, you can continue to operate your Airbnb or even start a new one in a residential neighborhood. So there is an option. That's what's going to be interesting to see how that works. Mike Murphy is with us. Como Buzz with one Z, ComoBuzz.com. Mike, do we have any idea how many of those homes? Nope. That's what's just fascinating. They had, they got, they took some serious criticism because, and I'm not sure it's fair criticism, but they needed to get these regulations in, but nobody really knows. They've gone to Airbnb. Airbnb provides a service and tells them who's operating, but getting right down to the bottom line of it, no, they don't know. So they don't know how many people they're hurting. Right. They can only guess. <sighs> well, um, all right, that's... <laughs> it's over, and uh, we're going to see the fallout now. I suspect they're going to get about 100 requests for a conditional use permits, which will be a disaster. That process is also politicized. You know, that means it'll always be accused of being crooked and rigged. And it pits neighbor against neighbor because they'll fight it in their neighborhoods. And I would I would have preferred they didn't put that in there, but they, they did, and now they're going to have to deal with it. Um, Mike, can we talk about the, the roll carts in, sure. the, in the bike lanes? Yeah. Well, the, uh, the complaint. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, boy. this is the issue that will never go away. I know. And, and one of the biggest complainers were pedestrians in the pedestrian lobby who want to walk in bike friendly, pedestrian friendly town. They said these roll carts are going to be in the bike lanes and we're not going to be able to ride our bikes. 
no, we're going to take care of that. We're going to do regulations. And they are. But what they did is when they passed them out, you know, they're going door to door to door to door and putting these things off a truck while they put them right in the bike lanes. So you can see a street and you can see block after block of bike lane with house after house of roll carts in the bike lane. <laughs> so the worst thing that's happening is people don't realize it doesn't start till March 4th. So now we have a bunch of them full of garbage sitting out at the street waiting to get picked up also. Uh, and wh- wh- where do they want them uh, ultimately? Right at the curb, but on the tree lawn? Right at the curb. But the- on the tree lawn, not in the street. Correct. Uh, some issues are just so much fun. Who you, who do you have uh, on uh, the Sunday Como Buzz? Uh- Nobody yet. It's, it's like well, that should be interesting. I know, I know. It's like last week, remember? I didn't have anybody till Saturday morning. This whole Bessie Peters thing came. And then we had a great show because we, we got into all this stuff with her. We also had a couple of candidates. If, uh, if I don't come up with anybody by tomorrow, we'll see what the news brings tomorrow. I'll probably reach out to a couple of political candidates. I'm giving them all a chance to come in and talk for five or ten minutes about their campaigns. So uh, we'll see where we're at as this day goes by. There's you know, quite there's a, a, there's a city council person. Or no, no, there's a realtor. Yeah. That's running for city council. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lisa Meyer. Lisa Meyer. Right. Uh, will she have a, a? Oh yeah, excellent choice. She will. If she gets elected, she'll up, immediately upgrade the council. She faces the challenge <laughs> of this, this uh, Robert Schreiber uh, the third. He's a member of the. He's a, a laborer. Works in maintenance at one of the uh, university's apartment complexes. But uh, he's a member of this local nine five five. And those guys work. Number one, they got money, and number two, they get out and work. So she's a formidable candidate, but you can't say she's going to win easy because I think those those folks actually go out and drum up votes. So that's going to be real curious that race, fun to watch in Ward Two. Uh, I think I have I know her personally, and uh, I think she's terrific. Yeah, uh, she, we had a forum. There was a, a election forum last week. I think Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday night. Yeah, she did very well. She was very organized. She's got her thoughts together. She's got a campaign. She's do, she's sounding very professional. Um, she, but she's a conservative, and it, she's not, she's not really making a, a secret about it. And she's putting it right out there. She's gonna, you know, she supports the police and these types of things, which the overwhelming majority of her ward would agree with. But who all shows up to vote in a municipal election in April when you're looking at 14 percent turnout, 15 percent turnout? Keeps it all kind of up in the air. You just you just don't know what's going to happen. I I will tell you a true story. This um, this happened. I don't know, maybe eight or nine years ago, maybe longer. Uh, I was invited to speak um, in front of some group, and I, I, I don't remember the name of the group. I should, but I don't. And uh, we were talking about uh, taxes and regulations, and I'd ask the question in this group, uh, you have a house, you've had it for 30 years, uh, do you own the house? Can you ever own your own home? And one hand went up, and that entire audience, only one hand went up, and it was Lisa uh, Meyer and she said, "No, uh, because the real estate tax keeps you from ever owning your own home." Yeah, she good. recognized that. Yeah, uh, being in real estate, and she really does promote that area. Because when we were looking to buy, she took us there. Uh, we were on the south side, and she took us right to uh, right there. So she she loves the area, promotes the area. Going to be interesting, Mike. I got to let you go. All right, thanks, Gary. Mike, thank you, Mike Murphy. Como Buzz with one Z dot com. Go subscribe. Get the news. Dave Rowland, he's been watching the Supreme Court, listening to the arguments. What is he? What's the takeaway? Trump going to be on the ballot in Colorado? We'll, we'll see what he has to say on the Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. 22 minutes after 11 o'clock.
We can talk about a Hawaiian Supreme Court decision. Uh, we could talk about the Jennifer Crumbly verdict uh, because she was found guilty of a crime her son committed uh, and much more with Dave Rowland. But we're instead going to talk to Dave about the Supreme Court case he's been listening to dealing with President Trump being on the ballot. And, of course, Dave is a constitutional attorney, uh, and it's uh, MoFreedom.org. If you're being screwed over by the government, uh, wherever you're at in the state of Missouri, he's the guy to call. Dave, what did you hear? Do you have any indication from the line of questioning which way justices are going to go? Uh, what, what did you... What's the takeaway? The, the takeaway is Trump's going to be on the ballot. And, you know, I, I normally hedge a little bit when we talk about reading tea leaves and how the court is likely to decide different cases. I would be willing to bet a lot of money on the fact that the court's going to rule maybe unanimously, certainly no worse than 7-2, that, that Trump is going to be on the ballot. I think that is likely the correct result in this case. I am a little concerned about how I think the court's going to get there. Um, So in this case, there were really kind of two big picture questions. The first is, is Donald Trump disqualified from serving as president because of the insurrection clause in the 14th Amendment? And then the second question is, who gets to decide? And today's uh, argument focused almost exclusively on the second part of that. Who gets to decide? And they stayed almost entirely away from the first question. And what that suggests to me is that the court is likely to come back and they're going to say, um, we cannot leave it to the states to make their own determinations about who their citizens get to vote for for president because that would lead to fragmentation. You could have, you know, 50 states reaching 50 different results about who gets to be on the ballot for president, and that's just untenable. That that was the general atmosphere that I heard from almost all of the justices. But Kagan was was that you yeah know, like- yeah Kagan Kagan was there too. Um, the the one judge that I think may push back on this would be Justice Sotomayor. Um, she might be willing to push back, and maybe 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 Justice Jackson, but I don't think so. Um, and so we'll we'll see whether it ends up being a unanimous decision or not. But I think the very obvious consensus was that. States don't get to make this decision. You had made an argument that yeah. this law doesn't really apply to a, a national uh, 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 office holder like president. That, that this law was well, it purposely applies to excluded. office holders. It, it applies to office holders. The question is whether the president counts as an officer of the United States under the Constitution. And and I've argued. I, I think a textualist reading of this suggests that they intentionally did not include the office of president and vice president in um, in the insurrection clause. 
And Justice Gorsuch, as one might expect, because he's a textualist like I am, uh, he was very interested in this. And surprisingly, Justice Jackson was very interested in this. And actually, Justice Jackson seemed to buy my perspective on this. Um, She was very concerned that it seemed intentional that the framers of this clause did not include president and vice president, even though they included officers of the United States, electors for president and vice president. Um, and, and she asked a couple of very pointed questions about this, but I think that she and Justice Gorsuch are the exception. I do not think the other seven justices were really interested in this particular issue. Um, but the big question now is who gets to decide whether someone has committed insurrection and is therefore ineligible for the office to serve as president. And there is no answer on that. Um, The closest thing that we got to an answer is, well, Congress would have to pass a law that specifies how a challenge could even be brought, uh, under what circumstances it could be adjudicated. But as of right now, the only statute that even seems plausibly to be relevant is we have a federal statute that defines uh, the crime of insurrection and presumably um, the only way to enforce the insurrection clause at this point would be for there to be a criminal prosecution for the crime of insurrection. There would have to be a conviction um, and then we would get to the question of um, whether that would result in uh, someone being barred from office. Is he, and if, I, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, he's not even been charged with insurrection, has he? That's correct. And several of the justices kept coming back to that point. They said, look, and Kavanaugh in particular was, was really focused on this point. He said, we have a, a crime on the book called insurrection. Congress created it. They could have charged President Trump with this if they wanted to. They didn't. And so basically he was suggesting without, you know, actually nailing down his position on it, that um, that having failed to bring charges for insurrection against President Trump, they basically gave away uh, any opportunity to uh, have him ruled disqualified from office. Um, I actually think this is incorrect. Gary, uh, you know, one of the things that that we have talked about um, before on the show in in relation to this question is the question of whether the 14th Amendment is self-enforcing. In other words, just because a provision is part of the Constitution, that doesn't necessarily mean that anyone has a way of getting the courts to enforce it. And when it comes to the 14th Amendment, and remember, this is the amendment that applies the Bill of Rights against the states. the courts have almost always said that the 14th Amendment is self-enforcing. Congress didn't have to do anything for citizens to be able to enforce the provisions of this, uh, of this um, uh, amendment where necessary. Um, and so I don't know how you can have a self-enforcing constitutional provision that somehow does not have any mechanism that citizens can pursue to actually apply it in the courts. And that's a question that should be answered by this decision. I'm not sure that it's going to be. All right. I'm up against the clock. I am I, curious. Uh, President Biden's um, case on top secret documents has, has been uh, concluded. He took top secret documents out of the Senate skiff. And 
I thought that was a crime. I, I don't know how that's not being even talked about. I don't know if you know anything about that. If you do, we'll talk about that briefly. Then we'll go on and talk about Jennifer Crumbly and uh, the Hawaii Supreme Court, among other things. All coming up with Dave Rowland on The Gary Nolan Show. This is The Gary Nolan Show. 11.35 on a think tank Thursday. If the government is trampling your rights in the state of Missouri, you go to Dave Rowland. You go to MoFreedom.org. By the way, I might add MoFreedom.org slash donate because... He represents people for free, but it's an expensive process. And, uh, you know, people donating help to fight and preserve freedom for all of us. Uh, Dave, uh, I'm not sure how familiar you are with uh, the Biden case and the top secret documents. But it was my understanding that he, as a senator, took top secret documents out of the Senate skiff which I thought was illegal. He did not have the right to do this. But I don't hear anything more about it. Uh, are you familiar with that aspect of it at all? I don't know a lot about the details of it. I know, generally speaking, that um, after they started investigating Trump's possession of the top secret records, that they started looking into a lot of uh, officials, including former senators, former vice presidents, and they found that it's actually relatively common uh, for them to have classified records sitting around uh, in offices or at homes, things like that. Um, and, and that, of course, is concerning, um, and it is a criminal offense in any situation um, for someone to retain possession of classified records that they're not entitled to have. Um, my understanding is that the reason that Trump has been treated differently from these other officials where they found these records is that the other officials, once they were discovered, immediately bent over backwards to return the records, whereas Trump did not. And yeah, so I, that seems to be the, the distinction. It, it falls under um, what they call prosecutorial discretion. Uh, in other words, prosecutors have a lot of leeway about whether and when to charge certain crimes. And in a situation like this, um, it's actually not surprising, not saying it's the right call, but it's not surprising um, that prosecutors would say, well, look, we're going to give them a pass on this. We think that uh, no harm, no foul. They recognize what they did was incorrect, and they work to rectify the situation quickly, and so we're just going to kind of let this go. Uh, again, not saying that that's correct, but it certainly is common and, and kind of to be expected. So that's my understanding of what has happened yeah, with my, uh, Biden's uh, possession yeah, I, of some of these I, records. I understand the distinction of uh, when they found out that this was the case, they were, you know, bending over backwards. My, my concern, though, is that uh, as a senator, um, you know, as vice president or president, you would have the right to take out uh, top secret documents. And then you could mistakenly not bring them back or, uh, you know, uh, rush to bring them back when you discover them, that sort of thing. But as a senator... You're, uh, I, I thought it was illegal to remove anything from the skiff. In fact, you had to kind of sneak it out. Uh, that I don't know. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I, my understanding is that senators that are members of certain committees may have more flexibility in terms of what records they're allowed to have possession of. 
Um, but that also could be incorrect. And so I don't want to say anything definitive on that because I'm just not okay. an expert in that area. All right. Well, then let's move on uh, because I, uh, I want to talk about this uh, ruling in the Hawaiians. Hawaii. Well, Gary, if, if I could go back to today's argument just to make one point, would you let me do that? Brian, should I? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll let Okay. You. All right. So... I have frequently been pretty harshly critical of the attorneys that have represented President Trump in various cases. I wanted to make a point of saying that I thought President Trump's attorney today uh, did an outstanding job. And, and in part, it was because he kind of defied the usual approach to that, that Trump's attorneys have taken. Um, Basically, when when some of Trump's attorneys go into court, they pound the table very loudly and they insist upon their perspective, even when it's really clear that the judges are not buying it whatsoever. Um, today, uh, the attorney was Jonathan Mitchell, and he made a point of engaging in a conversation, a respectful conversation with the justices, even when they were criticizing um, points that he had made in his briefing, and it came across extremely well. It showed him to be reasonable and thoughtful, and it was in stark contrast to the attorneys on the other side. The justices were asking hypothetical questions of the attorney that was representing Colorado's voters in this case, and the, the attorney just kept rejecting the hypothetical. So Justice Gorsuch in particular was pressing him on a particular point and he wanted a yes or no answer to a specific question. And the attorney kept trying to dodge it, kept trying to bend the, the conversation in a different direction. And, and Gorsuch finally said, do not reject my hypothetical. I am asking the question. I want you to provide a straight answer. And it just looked horrible. And that cascaded through the rest of the argument. So, um, like I said, I have frequently been critical of Trump's attorneys, and I wanted to make sure that I pointed out I thought his attorney today uh, did an excellent job. And, and I think it's going to pay dividends in the opinion when it's issued. Yeah, he's taking a bow right now, uh, President Trump is. Uh, what did he say, Brian? It's a beautiful. Uh, it was a beautiful case. It or was, yeah, a beautiful decision. Or so. uh, well, yeah. it, it hasn't even been decided yet. But he <laughs> is convinced that uh, he's got the upper hand here. All right. Well, Dave is too. All right. Uh, well, points well made. Uh, let us move on to this Hawaiian Supreme Court decision about Bruin. How does the yeah. Hawaiian Supreme Court get to make that choice? So this is crazy, Gary. <laughs> so. Um, one of the most important elements of the U.S. Constitution, as we have discussed, is the Supremacy Clause, which means that the U.S. Constitution trumps uh, whatever state provisions uh, might get adopted. And that includes if a state Supreme Court really doesn't like the way that the U.S. Supreme Court has interpreted one of these constitutional provisions. They don't get to make their own ruling, but that's exactly what Hawaii did yesterday. So they have um, a case that dealt with someone who had been charged with improperly storing weapons and ammunition, and he challenged it. He said, look, this is a violation of the Second Amendment, and it also violates Hawaii's constitution where the language uh, precisely mirrors the Second Amendment. They basically just carbon copied the Second Amendment into the Hawaii Constitution. And the Hawaii Supreme Court says, well, look, number one, we start by interpreting 
our state constitution first, and then we look to the state uh, to the uh, U.S. Constitution. So they decided that the Hawaii Constitution is interpreted differently, and that it does not cover um, the laws that were being challenged. But then they turned to the Second Amendment and they said, well, look, we know that the U.S. Supreme Court interpreted the Second Amendment this way. Let us go on for 20 pages about why we think that was wrong. And then let's go on for another few pages talking about how the history of Hawaii is distinct from the history of the United States. And therefore, the Second Amendment must be applied differently. Um, They invoked what they called the spirit of aloha uh, and the law of the shattered paddle to explain why Hawaii has never in its history had a problem with regulating weapons, the possession of weapons. Therefore, it doesn't matter what this U.S. Supreme Court said in Bruin. They were going to say these are perfectly constitutional restrictions on the right to keep and bear arms. I have got to think that this case is going to be on a fast track to the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, it, it is astonishing that a state Supreme Court would effectively say, we know the U.S. Supreme Court has said we've got to interpret a constitutional provision this way. We decline that invitation. Like, you just, you cannot do that. Um, it, it flies in the face of our entire constitutional system to have a state asserting this. And might I add, this is a very similar problem to what we might see out of Texas uh, in terms of how the U.S. Supreme Court has interpreted federal authority when it comes to the border. Um, we can't have states choosing to go their own way and flout the decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court, not if we intend to remain a unified country. And, and so I do hope that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to take up this Hawaii case and uh, smack it you know, back across the Pacific. But, um, but in saying that, I think we also need to acknowledge it's not good for red states to do this either. Like, we, we need, even when we don't like the decisions that are made by the U.S. Supreme Court, um, you know, unless we are ready to dissolve the republic, which I hope we're not, um, then then we need to respect and apply them properly and in a principled manner, and then work to try and get the Supreme Court to change its interpretation. Yeah, um, I, I just don't know how they. How does anybody who study the law? It's the spirit of Aloha, Gary. It's the spirit of aloha. All right. Well, when we come back, we'll say aloha to uh, Jennifer Crumbly's case with Dave Rowland on the Gary Nolan Show. It's the Zimmer Radio Network. It's 11.51 on a Think Tank Thursday. Dave Rowland is with us. Uh, there is a... It, the government is constantly trampling on people's rights. And in the state of Missouri, the guy to go to when that happens is Dave Rowland, uh, mofreedom.org. And uh, if you got a couple of bucks in your pocket you can spare, let's donate so that he can continue to represent people for free. These cases are never inexpensive. Uh, and he he's scored some pretty remarkable victories uh, since I've known him. Uh, Jennifer Crumbly, I, I found this disturbing. Uh, not that I didn't think she was a lousy mother. I did. But I think it's disturbing that, that uh, she's being... You know, held 
responsible for her son's behavior. Yeah, everything about this case is disturbing, including the outcome. Um, so for, for listeners who may not recall, this involves a shooting at a school where um, this this young man killed four of his fellow students. Um, and the reason why his mother got charged is because there were many, many indications prior to the shooting that her son was unbalanced, that he might act out in this way. Um, and she was made very much aware of the concerns that others were raising about her son's behavior. Um, she bought him the gun that he ended up using in this shooting. Um, the child's journal included uh, a number of entries where he said he was begging for his parents to help him uh, reach a therapist or um, uh, get get some help for his mental issues, and they refused. Um, the school had reached out to her and expressed severe concerns about some of the drawings and writings that the student had done in class, suggesting that he was planning a shooting. Um, and she ignored all of it. And then the son goes ahead and he commits these horrible crimes. But Gary, that does not make her the one that pulled the trigger. And a jury, um, six men and six women, held that she was guilty of manslaughter here. Um, I think that this verdict may get overturned on appeal uh, as a matter of law. Um, but it is extremely concerning for any parent that they might be held to uh, account, criminal account, for actions that their children make. Now, again, the facts in this particular case are extremely bad. And as we sometimes say, bad facts make bad law. Um, this case would be the epitome of that if it's allowed to stand, if the conviction is allowed to stand. Um, I want to point out that our legal system allows the families of those who were killed and injured by her son to go after the mother with a civil lawsuit. They can argue that she was negligent and that her negligence led to the injuries that they suffered. And quite frankly, I think that would be a slam dunk case, a slam dunk case that the mother was negligent, so negligent that it resulted in the deaths and injuries of all these other people. And then the families would be able to recover against the mother for the damages that they had suffered. But there's a big difference between finding someone civilly liable for being negligent and convicting them criminally for manslaughter. And, and that is a distinction that needs to be extremely clear and extremely bright. And unfortunately, this particular conviction, I think, um, muddles that distinction in, in a very dangerous way. Well, you, you say in a dangerous way. So this, there are pathologies that could develop here uh, for parents, uh, for other parents, right? Absolutely. Yeah, so, so the, the concern here is that once a court has said, okay, we can hold parents accountable, 
then the question is, is, well, how much evidence do we actually need to hold parents accountable? And that will become a declining standard. Like it's when you give an inch, all of a sudden it's easier for, for bad actors to take a mile. And so even though the facts in this particular case are absolutely horrifying and reprehensible, the next case Maybe it's not quite so clear, but because the dam has already been breached, the next jury is willing to say, okay, well, we we think this adult is responsible as well. And then it keeps getting watered down until maybe you have situations where a parent really didn't have reasonable notice that their child was about to do something horrible um, and therefore didn't really have an opportunity to intervene. And yet, if a jury is angry enough, if they're incensed enough about what happened, um, then they can end up taking out that anger on the parent. And that's what we need to avoid. Um, we, we should not hold others accountable for, for someone's sins. And that's, that's effectively what this decision would allow for. I've got two minutes. Uh, I, by the way, agree with you. Uh, two minutes. I saw the story. I didn't get a chance to talk about it today because it's Think Tank Thursday. Uh, but here in Missouri, uh, a Secretary of State candidate uh, took a flamethrower to some books, LGBTQ books. Yeah. So what I think is interesting about this is um, there. This is, of course, is a publicity stunt. You know, she's trying to drum up publicity for her campaign, and uh, so she burned the books. And immediately, people are saying, "Oh, well, isn't it a criminal offense to burn books?" And yada yada yada. And the first thing that jumped into my mind is, um, "Well, we have cases about flag burning. We have cases about burning draft cards, um, and it is clearly established that it can be a." protected First Amendment activity to express yourself by setting something on fire. Now, that typically goes for something that you own. What happens if it's not something that you own, something that's that belongs to somebody else? Because the implication that this candidate uh, allowed to exist was that these were library books that she had taken out of the Springfield Public Library. Well, if those are books that belong to the Springfield Public Library that she burned, all of a sudden, there's no First Amendment protection for that. You do not have a First Amendment right to destroy someone else's property, especially public property. But if this was kind of a ruse, if she bought the books herself or obtained the books uh, from some other private owner who was okay with it and burned them, then that, I think, indeed would be protected free expression under both the U.S. and Missouri constitutions. I think it is. Uh, I also think the problem, uh, it, it really rests in the fact that we allow uh, government schools to exist uh, and, and, uh, and to have their libraries. Uh, this, this should all be done at the private marketplace and you decide whether you want your kid to be exposed to it or not. Dave Rowland, MoFreedom.org, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Gary. Whatever it is in life that you want, go out and get it. Don't wait for the government to drop it in your lap. You make it happen. You seize the day, Carpe Diem. Gwen, baby, honey, I'm coming home.